All right, well, let's begin with the word of prayer. Lord, once again, every time we come together and every time we open your word, we are utterly dependent on you and we need to be aware of that. Lord, your word must be spiritually discerned and Lord, we thank you that you've given it to us and we thank you for the truth that it conveys. I just pray that uh, this evening, uh, the few things that we consider that are so pertinent and so practical, just pray that you would bless our consideration of these things and uh, just enlarge our hearts with a sense of your purpose um, being worked in and fulfilled through uh, the local church body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, when we take up the idea of meaningful metaphors that it says on there, there are a lot of metaphors, there are a lot of uh, those, those little examples given in the scripture that speak to the church, and we're going to see a, f- a few more in the coming weeks. Today we're going to look at the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. But other than that, we've got, we've got the temple, we've got the flock, we've got the priesthood, the holy nation, the household, pillar and buttress of the truth. So we've got a few other ones, but today we're going to look specifically at the body and the bride of Christ, primarily even at the body of Christ. Now, the, the nice thing about this particular week is, is we've, we've wrestled in the previous weeks with a few things that um, are a little bit complex, and we've had to work our way in and through and see a different perspectives and, and, a, and, and a bunch of different passages. Tonight, as we get into these things, they are exceedingly practical. I mean, they just, they, they just scream at us who Christ is and the great value that he is and then who we are as a body and how we are to function. So let's go ahead and get into it. And the first thing that I want us to see here is um, uh, the preeminence and the passion of the body. And that is Christ. In Colossians 1 verse 18, God's word says this. And he, that is speaking of Christ, the beloved son, as it says in verse 13. He is the head of the body. That is one of those things that we don't ever want to miss. Who's the head of the body? Jesus. At all times and in all places, he remains the head of the body. Every local church belongs, when, if it is a true proper church, belongs to Jesus Christ. And we want to make sure that we understand that and we don't fall into the patterns of attributing to any local church an identity rooted in a man. Which too often, the, the people will root their churches in, uh, they'll be known as that pastor's church or brother so-and-so's church. It happens over and over again. And then it becomes a cultural phenomena, and it's something that we ourselves can fall into. You know, God willing, and, and, and we hope that when leadership is done right, it is constantly people are constantly being directed to the fact that Christ has preeminence. Christ has the final say. You know, it's, it's not that... It, it, what we are to believe, Christ has the final say. What we are to do, Christ has the final say. It all keeps coming down to that, not, uh, not down to um, he's in charge or he's in charge. When it comes right down to it, Christ ought to be the ultimate in charge of what is done in a local church. It says here, he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And people struggle over that. He's the beginning of what? That um, all things were created through him? And without him was not anything made that was made? Well, yes, he is the beginning of all creation. But is he also the beginning of the church that he purchased with his own blood and that he builds with his own power? And so when it says he is the beginning, 
we can't really fight over which beginning might this be referring to because we don't know. He is the beginning of all creation and all, he is the one that holds all creation together. And he is the beginning of the church and the one that brings and holds the church together. When it says he's the firstborn of the dead, um, again, we know that he is the first to, uh, to be glorified in that sense. But I also want you to note from Psalm 89, verse 27. For those who are actually doing the McShane readings, we've recently read Psalm 89. And this whole section... Psalm 89, verse 27 and following is all about Christ. It's all prophetic messianic psalms. And it says this of him, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. I give you that verse because it's meant to convey a sense that we don't often carry in our minds when we say firstborn. If I asked you, who's your firstborn? You might have an answer for me. And it's unlikely that individual carries any kingship. You know, that, that it's unlikely in our society that that distinguishes him in any position of superiority or excellence to the other siblings. Correct? Now, if you're a firstborn here, you're saying, no, it does distinguish as superior. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, but no, it does. But the sense that's oft carried in the scriptures, and particularly when it is put upon Christ, is it speaks of his authority. Uh, it would be the firstborn son that would carry on the, the, the leadership of the clan. And Christ here, it, in this sense, it says, I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. So the firstborn, again, speaks of his absolute foremost authority. That's, that sense carries on here. He, he's the one who will carry on the authority of the household when the father passes away in an earthly situation. He's the one who it's been bestowed upon in the giving of his own life in, in this scriptural setting. And that that in everything, Colossians 1.18, in everything he might be preeminent. So again, he's the one that we will speak of first and foremost. I, I often remind people of this. When Jesus is speaking to the apostles, he says, look, I'm going to uh, send the Spirit and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and deliver it to you. So we know that where the Spirit of, uh, of, uh, Spirit of God is active, Christ will be spoken of. And, and indeed, though we glory in the Father and we walk in the Spirit... Christ is by design to have preeminence in the church. We're to speak of him because he is the, he's salvation. He is reconciliation. He is life and strength and hope and peace. He's become our wisdom, our sanctification. All of those things from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and following. He is to have preeminence in everything. So much so that Jesus could even say, um, apart from him, we can do nothing. Such is our absolute dependence upon him. And it, the passage then goes on to say down in verse 27, uh, 24 in Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in the affliction, uh, in Christ's affliction, for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, I've just drawn your attention that for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, when you read that passage, I'm sure some of your minds begin to, to flood what could possibly be lacking in the affliction of Christ and tempted to say, how dare Paul seem to indicate in the slightest that anything would be lacking in the suffering of Christ. Do you start to feel that? 
But then you pull back from that and say, but wait, he's an apostle, and what he is giving is by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it's true, <laughs> and so it's right. Now, is anything lacking for our reconciliation, for our redemption, for our peace? There is not. But by divine design, the, the dissemination and declaration of all that Christ would give to the church would come through the apostles. In other words, Christ did not roam around and declare the gospel to everyone. Indeed, when we remember that when it's initially found out, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus told them, tell no one of these things. So these things were kept back. These things were kept closed until Jesus had fulfilled all righteousness, until he had accomplished all that was to be accomplished in his death and resurrection. And then the message of who he is and the fullness of all that we read in the Gospels, such as you would read in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, th th those are not the things that anybody was getting in Jerusalem and Galilee during the days of Christ. That's the message that was declared coming out of His resurrection. Indeed, a fuller understanding of even all of those things really was communicated to those apostles after Jesus himself had arisen from the dead. You do remember that, right? He breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then he explains to them all the things that pertain to him. And the scriptures remind us that over 40 days, he continued to meet with and instruct these men. Okay, so when... So what's lacking in Christ? Uh, nothing is lacking in his sacrifice per se, but with the, in the purposes of God, he has accomplished all that's necessary, but the delivery of that truth, the declaration of that truth, was not upon Christ. It was upon those apostles who would then follow him. Um, it says this, for example, in John 17, 20, as Jesus is praying in his high priestly prayer, he says, I do not ask for these only. At that time, he is praying for those apostles who are with him. But what? For also for those who will believe in me, through their word. I want you to notice this. Through whose word? The apostles' word. And you see, you, see, you see the same thing being declared so clearly in the beginning of 1 John. You read that, that beginning of 1 John. Who we saw, who we felt, and we witness. We were eyewitnesses to his glory. And they go on and on with this, with this clarity. Listen. He prayed for them and for those who were to believe through their word, which means every person who's ever come to a saving faith, it has ultimately come through the word delivered by the apostles. So... So that's what was lacking, if you want to say, if you want to use that phrasing. The declaration and delivery of all that Christ was and all that Christ did. I'm still uncomfortable with the phrase, that, the thought that anything would be lacking in it. But simply in the unfolding plan, it was all accomplished. Now it is to be declared, delivered, disseminated, spread around. 
So, and that's what Paul was doing. And how do I know that that's what Paul is talking about here? Well, because he says this, of, the, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So, what was lacking? The making of it fully known. Because that task was entrusted by Christ to the apostles. Christ accomplished it. He is the message. He is the one that it's all about. But the delivery of that, the declaring of it, the making known these things is what was given to the apostles. And, and it explains it even further in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Revealed to them, revealed to them how? Christ, by his teaching and by the Holy Spirit, perfectly delivered the truth to his apostles. His apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, perfect, perfectly wrote and recorded the truth of God and Christ for us in, in his word so that we have all of that. So the preeminence is Christ. The passion of the body is for the word of and through Christ that's been delivered to us. Hmm. Secondly, what are the priorities um, with the body? Okay, I, I, I space this out specifically. It says body growing and building. As if I simply said bodybuilding, you're thinking something different, which I'm okay if you do briefly, because when someone is bodybuilding, what are they doing? They're, they're kind of, in the, in the earthly sense, focusing on themselves, right? Yeah, that's not what's going on here. Bodybuilding in the spiritual sense is, is the opposite of focusing on yourself. And we're going to see how that unfolds in this passage here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 and following. Initially, this is having spoken... Um, at the very end of verse 11 of God appointing uh, pastors and teachers or shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I often tell this to you, and I'm going to repeat it now because we're reading this verse. You are all ministers. You are all appointed by God to ministry. You are all called into the ministry. Now, that does not mean you're all called to be pastor shepherds, okay? You, you don't need too many of those. <laughs> but but the, the danger is when we don't understand that we all have a work of ministry. And in a sense, one of... One of mine and Doug's primary responsibilities, uh, one of our primary ministries, is to equip you all for the ministries that you're to do. So our, uh, ours is, a, is an equipping you ministry, but your ministry is essential for the vital functioning of the body, not just us. And, and, and don't miss this. We are not the head. Christ is still the head. We are simply given that task of taking what the head, in a sense, delivered to the mouth, the apostles, and then we are, God willing, if we're doing our job right, simply repeating what they have said. Simply making clear what they have communicated, what Christ would have us know. And it says this, for the building up of the body of Christ. So listen, the ministry 
And as we all function in our, in our ministries, the body of Christ is built up. This, this has to continue to go on. And, and uh, when you see the, the end goal, you realize it is unattainable, this side of glory, with absolute perfection. Because what does it say? Until we all attain the unity of faith, hopefully we can attain that part of it, a unity that we're all committed to and understanding and growing in and believing the truth, the faith, the what the scriptures say of the knowledge of the Son of God. But then it goes on to mature manhood. Now, we, even that seems attainable, a unity in the faith, mature manhood, but then it sets the standard just a little bit higher to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ooh. So that's why, you know, we make progress, God willing. We grow, God willing. In that process also, hopefully, God is using us in the lives of one another to encourage, to provoke, to love and good works, to uh, sometimes to rebuke, for reproof, for correction. A lot of that happens in, in, the, in the scope of teaching and preaching. But remember, when we looked back, and the, the passage we looked at briefly in part uh, last week, I think it was, or week, two weeks ago, maybe last week, Matthew 18, where it, it gave it, uh, spoke of church discipline. That begins who? Brother to brother, sister to sister. Brother and sister, it doesn't begin by, oh, I found something out about this person. Let me go and tell the pastors. You know, you got to do this. You got to take care of this. What? They shouldn't even know about it. <laughs> Unless you've attempted to deal with it and been rebuffed. Maybe they're among the two or three that you bring with you to go and speak to them. And then they tell it to the church if they continue in rebellion. But... You go to that person first to call them back. You don't need to, to, to make it a big issue if God is going to bring correction in the first step. You know, uh, I, I don't need, and I don't think Doug keeps a, a, a book of all the stumbles that you all, you know, I don't need to know all of your failings. I don't know if I have... Uh, uh, un enough notebooks to mark down my own failings. <laughs> so I don't need to keep a notebook of your failings. And, and we don't want to necessarily keep a record of one another's wrongs anyways. So we go to that person, we go to them in love, and we call them out to repent. We, we, we seek that unity. Because look, we, it, why we want to attain a unity in the faith, why there has to be a growth so that we may lo no longer be children tossed to and fro uh, by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine. So listen to this. One of the important elements of the body being built up is doctrine, is theology. And I know somewhere some, some people want to shake their head, tisk, tisk, tisk. Oh. Yes, it, that, because it is, it is protective and preventative. Because when the, when the storm comes, when the deceitfulness comes, when the false things come, you're like, I ain't moving because I know what the scriptures say. And so you're not just always going here and there. You've probably, some of you have lived long enough to see that there are fads in Christianity. There's forms of Christian practice that, that become in fashion, in season. You know, really bizarre things where suddenly somebody thinks if you pull an of an obscure, relatively self-serving prayer from an Old Testament character named Jabez, 
and you just start repeating that over and over again, then, then you are on the cusp of blessing. Really? You know, Jabez lived in a different time, in a different era. He lived under a different covenant. We actually live under a better covenant with better promises. His junky covenant was earthly provisions and earthly prosperity. We have eternal riches of grace and mercy that are ours in Christ Jesus. You take that useless riches, we have Christ, the truest treasure, right? Can I? Yeah, we got some amens. I didn't even have to ask. I mean, but, but th that, and strangely enough, people buy that stuff. It becomes best-selling books. And then you start wrapping up pagan ideas. Hey, let's, let's draw circles. Let's draw some circles on the ground. Why, why are you drawing circles? What, what is that going to do? You know, <laughs> and, and sometimes you, you, and you probably have met people who have read and spoken of and maybe even practiced these things and you're and you and and you're wondering can anybody fall for some of this stuff and a lot of what we might call genuine hearted sincere people have indeed fallen for these things yeah and in in the process they they, they lose a, a a sincere and pure and simple faith. And what's strange is they begin trusting instead of in the wisdom and purpose of God and in the power of Christ, they begin trusting in their prayer method, their technique. Their, well, yeah. Look, People even get caught up in, you don't, you don't trust in your prayer and you don't trust in your faith. Your faith is in God, in, in His ability and in His power. And anyone, uh, what's remarkable is so few of these people are ready to run into the Garden of Gethsemane with Christ and make that the exemplary prayer. The prayer to which he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Should that not be there in our hearts in every prayer? And also the simple reality that Christ was speaking to his father with absolute obedience, absolute perfection. He had the ear of his father. He had the love. He had the mercy of his father. And his father said, no. This cup will not pass from you. And so we understand sometimes, even in our lives, the most remarkable expressions of God's love and mercy towards us is when He does not give us what we're asking for. And when you're in it and it's hurting, it's not easy to see that, you know, but we know because we see the cross and we even hear the cry of, uh, of Jesus on the cross and then we see his risen, we see his victory and we know his promises surely prevail. So uh, moving on here, rather verse 15, uh, Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. So when I've talked about correcting one another doctrinally, correcting one another practically, we do so in love. The design is to help grow, to help purify. It's not to win. It's not to defeat them. It's not to um, establish a superior position or to establish ourselves as the as the more mature because listen sometimes those who actually stumble into particular sins and fall into sinful patterns are even the very mature in Timothy it talks about them rebuking elders who are caught in sin 
and, to, and those who continue in sin to rebuke them publicly. These were men who had an established track record, proven character, proven doctrine, and yet still proved to be men, still proved to be weak, still proved at times to need to be reproved. And that's, that's the reality of it. I mean, and, and again, I think we, we roll back and we're all aware of, of Peter and Peter's remarkable failures over and over again. I mean, his, his, his boldness to, to rebuke Jesus and then his bold claim that he will not deny and then he denies him three times. And yet we remember, what did Jesus do? He restored him. He still gave him that remarkable privilege. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Not, you're disqualified, you loose. And he wasn't done failing, was he? No, because he would end up, as we're told in Galatians, going there and uh, uh, pulling back from eating with the Gentiles. And in, in, his, in that moment, his step was out of line with the gospel. Now, note this. We tend to think of that as being unique to Peter. Uh, that is true of Paul, and possibly we see an example of that in, in uh, being so merciless and hard judgment against John Mark, possibly. Um, but that's true of Barnabas. That's true of John. It's true of Bartholomew. It's true of James. It's true of Thomas. It's true of all of them. They would not be perfect. And look around. You will not find a person in this room who is perfect. You will not find a person in this room that does not still stumble, does not still struggle, does not still need to grow and to strengthen. So whenever you see someone, you want to be used of God in their life to grow and strengthen. Now, however that may be, and depending on where you're at, it's, it's unlikely since the elders are established in a role uh, because they're sound doctrine that they are to be teachers. So they're primarily going to be uh, helping to correct your doctrine. So probably not all that frequent that you're going to help them grow doctrinally. But because we, we don't think we need to help them grow doctrinally, we sometimes think they don't need us at all. And they still do, still need your love, still need your patience, still need your encouragement, still need your prayers, and still need you to, to, to remember when you look at them and they didn't quite react right or they didn't seem to do this or that, they are not the head of the church. You know, if you, if you fix your eyes on any single individual... At some point, you are going to be discouraged. They are going to let you down. They're going to say something that rubs you the wrong way. They're going to give you that kind of a look. You're going to meet them on a bad day, you know, or, or a bad hour or a bad year. You know, we've all been there. So, um, we... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Remember, we're, we're, we're trying to bolster one another up. In, in a sense, the idea is like up into Christ. We're trying to urge one another onward, Christward. Onward, Christward. That's why I do like, of course, Paul says to follow his example. He even says, urges to follow the example of the leaders they, uh, that they had in Hebrews. But I'd like when Paul does say with greater clarity, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so indeed, those same things we would say, when you see something Christ-like in those around you, 
something notable, something praiseworthy. Give praise to God for working that grace in them and plead with Him that you might grow in it. And maybe come alongside of them. that You might kind of learn what are some of the ways that God worked on them to get them there. Sometimes by pruning. Uh, from whom, speaking again of Christ, from whom the whole body is joined together, every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I wanted to note that when each part is working properly, now I'm going to, let's back up just for a second. The head is who? I'm just going to give you a hint here. That's always working properly. <laughs> okay? But the question is, sometimes the message isn't getting from the head down to the feet or to the knee or to the back or to whatever it may be. But what, what I want us to note this here, it says when each part is working properly, by God's design, we all have a part. Now, I, I urge you to prayerfully consider it this way. People often want to maybe get back out of this, and we're going to look at the next passage. It'll help us put a few things together. Um, people think, okay, so am I a hand? Am I a mouth? Am I an ear? We got too many mouths, okay? <laughs> or what, what is it? And, and people... Even the same kind of thing, people get caught up. What is my spiritual gift? Let me take a test and find out. Well, instead of all that, why not pray and look at the church and say, what is the need? How can I help? How can I bless? How can I serve? And then do that with dependence on God to help you. Don't, don't say, ah, oh, yeah, that's my gift right there. Come, yet take that back because, or, or draw that down because we are going to look at a passage that says, let no one think of himself more highly than he ought. Uh, but each part working together makes the body grow. So there is that sense that if there is going to be growth, it can't be dependent. There has to be this life among the body you know and we have to all be committed to it first corinthians 14 3 and a bunch of other verses there i just emphasize with with the struggles that and all the wrong things that were going on in the church of corinth he's trying to remind them in the exercise of their gifts and the undertaking of their gatherings what does he say over and over again speak to the people for their upbuilding encouragement and consolation Builds up the church. The church may be built up. Strive to excel in building up the church. But the other person is not built up. I, I like that language because so, it's so easy for us on occasion to talk about ourselves. I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm not this and I'm not that. Have you ever heard that? Felt that? Said that? It, it, it happens. What we ought to be telling ourselves is... How can I build others up? What, what's, what's remarkable about this and what I've learned through the years is people have found that when they, when they gather with, with that heart to serve the Lord in the lives of one another, in the, in the most simple and practical of ways of just uh, uh, speaking words of encouragement, consolation, just being involved in one another's lives, the person who is... What does it say? Striving to build one another up and building the other person up. Actually, the person who's building the other person up, when they go away, they feel fulfilled. The person who's there for themselves, off leave unfulfilled. The person who's there for Christ and those who are Christ's, off leave more fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? So we got to, what is that, uh, you know, the phrase is we've got to get over ourselves. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 
Verse 12 and following, it expands on this idea of, of participation in the body, one body with differing members. There is one body and it has many members, and all the members all, uh, of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So the whole point is, you shouldn't think, well, I'm this, I'm that, this is my gift, this is my that, uh, I can't do much. Don't matter. You're part of the body. You're part of the body of Christ. So why, why would you be worried about shaming yourself or glorying in yourself when you ought to be just thrilled to be a part of the body of Christ? I belong to Him. We belong to Him. And that's what it's all about. And keep going. For in one spirit we're baptized. I'm going I'm to carry on down to the uh, highlighted portion in verse 18. As it is, it had said in there, of course, the body, uh, the foot cannot say because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. I mean, that's pretty obvious stuff, right? The hand needs the foot to get from place to place, and then the foot needs the hand to pick things up. I guess I might even put it this way. Um, part of the, the tragedy that many churches have found out during this season, if I remove my hand... And I, and, I, and I Skype with it. It's not very useful. <laughs> it's not quite the same thing, is it? You know, just, it, it, it? But when we come together, when there is this, this tangible unity, one of the things that we'll look at in, in the, in the uh, coming weeks or glaze past, look at all the times. I mean, Paul is writing to them. Does he not have confidence that the word of God that he's writing them and that the power of the Spirit will have a profound effect? Yes, sure he does. But what does he still often say? I hope to come and see you face to face. And even he says that, even says that within the context of that, I hope to come and see you face to face, that indeed you might have a second experience of blessing. Right? Not, not a second blessing in like a second receiving of the Holy Spirit or anything like that, but grace upon grace upon grace, and there is an abounding grace when God's people are assembling. Yeah, I just said I was going to say that in the future, and then I said it now. So, All right, verse 18. God, as it is, God arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And so, so here, here's, the, here's the interesting thing. You don't want, you know, you don't want to be the person saying, um, you know, uh, I want to be the mouth. I want to be the mouth. I want to be the hand. I want to be the hand. If I can't be the hand here because they already got plenty of hands, then I'm going to go find a body where I can be the hand. I'm going to go find a place where I can be the mouth. Well, that, I guess here's my question at that point. Is it about Christ and the body, or is it about your part? It ought to be about Christ and the body, and, and, and so our heart ought to be, all right, when necessary, I can be a mouth. And when necessary, I can be a hand. And whatever is needed on any given occasion, God help me to be there to step in and serve. Again, verse 21, it's, it's, it says, or verse 20, uh, there are many parts, yet one body. Continues to emphasize that. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to, to the feet, um, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we display greater honor. And so on. So the whole point is, the more insignificant you think you are, the more indispensable you are to the body. You're needed. But what do I bring? It's not what you bring. It's when you come, do you come to bring others closer to Christ? Do you come to bring them love? Do you come to bring them consolation? Do you come to bring them encouragement? Do you come to bring them uh, help and generosity? Whatever it is, 
Because remember, it goes on to say, uh, verse 24, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Um, but the members, uh, that there may be no division, but that the members may have the same care one for another. In other words, we shouldn't think of ourselves as um, dispensable, insignificant, and we ought not think of any of our brothers and sisters as dispensable or insignificant. They're part of the body of Christ. If Christ has brought them to be a part of His body, they belong there. Even if you don't know what exactly they contribute. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Uh, I, I like that. And we, we know that by example. If, if one member suffers, suddenly you realize that it seems every part of your body is connected to that messed up toe. You know, and you don't realize how how essential the, the seemingly insignificant things are. But listen, the, the same sense. Uh, but when one suffers, we all suffer together. We don't shame that person who's suffering. When one is honored, we are all honored. We don't just glorify that person. You know, If we were doing this right, we probably wouldn't live in the age of celebrity Christianity. But we do. So God help us. Romans chapter 12 goes on to say this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So I'm, I'm doing both things here. One, I've said, if you, if you feel um, I'm insignificant and dispensable, you're wrong. If you feel like I alone can do what I do and without me, they're done. You're also wrong. You're, you're putting yourself uh, uh, too much up there. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith as God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, and, and go on, we have different gifts. Verse nine, go down to verse 9 with me. So how does this all express itself? Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Not outdo one another in demanding honor. Not outdo one another in receiving honor. But outdo one another in showing honor. God help us with that. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Don't, do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Which means our personal preferences and personal opinions, those get set aside. You know, in the end, when, when, we, when we start talking about what we ought to be doing as a church and what ought to be our priorities and what ought to be our focus, let's none of us be wise in our own sight. Those are, those are good things to consider, and then we go to the source of all wisdom. We go to listen to the head. We say, what does he say are the church's priorities? What, do he, what does he say is to be our patterns, our practices, our commitment? And, and we'll see what those things are in a few weeks. And we've got to be careful because it's just too easy to get wise in our own eyes. And that wisdom can come from our experience. That wisdom can come from our, 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 our church traditions. But here's the reality. Is it really wisdom? Is it really? Because what is the wisdom of men compared to the wisdom of God? If anyone's been around 1 Corinthians 1 before. It's foolishness. Yeah. Okay. So uh, repay no one for evil evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
I'm thankful for that last sentence there. And let's not take it lightly. If possible, so far as it depends on you. Which does indicate sometimes it ain't going to work out. Sometimes they're just going to have something against you. Sometimes they just can't get over it. But listen, don't be too quick to say it's all on them. So far as it depends on you. Which does not cancel out what, what's, what's being said before that. Uh, verse 9, let love be genuine. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So there's not a point at which with somebody that you, you, is, you're trying your best and it's just not really becoming peaceable. If you're still around them and they're still around you, you keep doing that. You keep loving. You keep being compassionate. You keep being patient. Why? Because you can't just... I tried. It's not on me anymore. No, no, they're still there. And you're still there. So you need to keep outdoing. Now, it may be very easy to outdo them in showing honor. Because they ain't showing none. You know? And, and, maybe, and maybe way easier to outlove them. Because they ain't showing none. But nonetheless, when you do it, there's, some, there, there, there's a human tendency, I think, that gets us to the point where we say, I'm done. I'm giving, and I ain't getting. I'm done. But listen, when you do that, you're getting nothing from them. But who's pleased? The head is pleased. And not only that, the... That, that continued show of love and patience and, and compassion and, and honor, it may not be affecting them, but it may be affecting one of their family members, maybe affecting other people who see, who see what's going on in the church, and they're encouraged to persevere in, in relationships that might actually get reconciled. So we don't always know the secret works of God. And what he's unfolding behind the scene. But we know what he'd have us do. So what do you think? Shall we do it? All right. Now let's get on to uh, the next one. The bride. That is the, uh, or wife and the bridegroom, the husband. So we had the body of which Christ is the head. And we are all members connected and functioning together. In different capacities and different roles, but all integral to one another. Uh, we know the idea of the bride. Uh, Paul says to the church at Corinth, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So it speaks of the church as the bride of Christ. Now these, this, the, these metaphors are uncomfortable for me. You know, in my exceeding masculinity, this, this strikes at me a bit. But I, I, I've got to deal with it because it's the group, not me individually. But, but listen, the same thing, and this, this phrasing catches on. They say, why are your disciples not fasting when others do? And he says, look, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So there's this regular uh, pointing of this position that Christ has as the bridegroom, as the husband, as the head. And, and again, it comes out in John 3. This here is John the Baptist speaking in John 3. It says, look, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly to hear the bridegroom's voice. So John the Baptist is thrilled that the bridegroom has come. And he is soon to prepare his bride. And so he's rejoicing. And in Revelation 21, it says this, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And who is that? Ultimately, it is, as it says in verse 27, later in chapter 21, only those who are written 
in the Lamb's book of life. Now, with regard to this, let's just uh, uh, see a bit about the bride and the groom. In Ephesians 5, it says this, and we are not focusing on family roles this evening, which are relevant, but we want to focus most specifically on Christ and the church, which is woven into this. It says, uh, husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now listen, one of the things that uh, Paul often does is when he starts thinking about Christ, sometimes he gets caught up in the moment. And he breaks into something that's called enconium. Which means he just breaks out into a, a little expansion and word of praise, and then he comes back to his main topic. Okay? Christ is what? He's the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Please note this, husbands. You are not your wife's savior. That's not the similarity here. The, the, the headship is similarity similar, but Savior, there is one Savior of both the husband and the wife because both the husband and the wife are members of the body, the church. It's just after speaking about Christ's headship to the church, he can't stop and he keeps going. And you're going to see it again in a moment. Now, as the church submits to Christ... Now, we won't get into the complexities uh, in our homes and the perfections in our homes or imperfections in our homes, whatever it may be. But note this, what is, it, what is the expectation of the church? It submits to Christ in everything. In everything. So whenever a question arises, what ought we believe? What ought we practice? What do we do? We search the scriptures to discover what he would have us do. And when he says, do it like this, what do we do? We do it like that. Well, what if we don't think that's effective? What if we, what if we think that preaching is not effective? If we go around and we preach the gospel to people, they're going to think we're preachy. What do you think? But we need to come up with new techniques, you know, lights and ponies and dances. And we got to come up with something that captures their imagination. Holograms. You know, we got to come up with something. Is that right? What does the scripture say? Through the foolishness of preaching. So when the world says it's not going to work, what do we say? Yeah, it's going to work to call all of his lost sheep to the shepherd. You know what's going to happen? When we preach the gospel by the power of the Spirit, they're, they're going to spiritually hear his voice call their name, and they are going to follow him, and he's going to give unto them eternal life. And that's the way it's going to happen. How are they going to follow him? How are they going to call on the name of the Lord and be saved? They're going to hear it proclaimed. So that's, again, it's shocking. Books are put out every year speaking about how um, to make the church more relevant and how we've got to get it more relevant in our society and, and, and how we've got to change this and change that. And you know what? If they're talking about certain traditions Traditions that aren't rooted in submission to Christ, change it! But don't change it by the wisdom of man. Change it by the wisdom of Christ. Also, it goes on to say that it submits to him in everything. Verse 25 says this. I'm reading only the bold print now. Christ loved... I've got to read the first part too. Uh, verse 25. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Means here it's speaking about a desire for her good that even leads to a degree of sacrifice. But after putting that out there, just like he did earlier when he expanded to Savior, he's going to again go get so excited about what Christ has done as Christ gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Okay? Christ sanctifies the church, which inv- includes what? Husbands and uh, wives. I mean, when I say it like that, it's clearer, isn't it? I don't know why I say it like that. But husbands and wives, right? So, listen, I am not my wife's sanctifier. I probably give ample opportunity for her to be sanctified, you know, and vice versa in all of our homes. But nonetheless, the the whole point is, um, he goes on sanctifier, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. Can we do that regarding our wives? We don't have that power. But Christ does. Now, I'm ready for this. Christ has that power in the life of every husband. Christ has that power in the life of every wife, the life of every child. He has the power to sanctify and to present. And indeed, if he has brought them to his church, he will accomplish that. But one of the things I do want us to not miss about this is this idea of sanctifying, cleansing, washing, purifying... Even the phrasing is, giving this hint, Christ is doing this and accomplishing this in the context of church. Just as husband and wife do this in the context of marriage, Christ does this in the context of church. So when someone thinks that they can, uh, you know, and it's not uncommon these days for someone to say, you know, I love Jesus, but I just hate religion, or I just hate church, but I love Jesus, you know, and, and, and my relationship is personal with him. And, and he and I walk, and he and I grow, and, and, but I don't want to be a part of any church. I don't want to be accountable to anybody. I don't want to be, uh, yeah. Listen, and I, and I want to say this in the nicest way possible. Um, if we look at it, if it in the context of households, you know, if, some, if we are the children of God, and let's not overestimate ourselves, but you leave toddlers at home to cook, clean, feed, pay the bills, what's going to happen? And you come back in a year. Well, here's the question. Are they still going to be alive? Do they even know how to go shopping? Do they even know? Are they, how's it all going to work? That's, that's, that's the ludicrous sense of somebody thinking that they can be the lone Christian, you know, and that they can carry on out there all by themselves, and I'm going to cook for myself, and I'm going to feed myself, and I'm going to do this just me and Jesus, me and Jesus. Look, Do you not understand the extraordinary relationship that Christ has purposed between himself and his church? Why would you ever take yourself out of that context when it is into that extraordinary context that you have the washing with the word, the sanctifying, the cleansing, the purifying, this all the stuff that we so need. Why Why would you miss out on that? 
you know, we don't live in that age anymore, and I'm thankful for it. But there was a bygone era where there would be bath night. And it was a once-a-week deal, back when, back when you didn't have running water in the same ways that we do. And look, if you miss bath night one week, not so good. You miss bath night for three weeks. Yeah, it, it gets bad. You get that sense. And so I, I, I guess it's helpful, I think, if we get these images into our minds. Remember, these were not the days of, of running water. That's why they would regularly wash their hands and they would regularly wash their feet in between the occasions for a proper, proper thorough cleansing. But we've got this remarkable privilege, and it says this, even regarding the body, it ends by saying this, and I go down to the very bottom. Um, uh, speaking of Christ, nourishes and cherishes his body, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Nourishes, cherishes, cleanses. So, so the practical reality, we most experience the love of Christ when we come together as a church. When we see each other face to face. That, that's the most extraordinary season uh, of nourishing, of cleansing, of sanctifying. And now, so, th so we've got, listen, in these two things that are going, going on tonight, we've got, uh, in, in, the, in the metaphors of the church... The remarkable riches of what Christ is doing in and among us as his church. And secondarily, the tremendous uh, 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 privilege of participation that each of us has as a member of the body of Christ. That God has so designed it that that, that, that nourishing and cherishing and growing that he's, and sanctifying that he's doing in the church mentioned in Ephesians 5. Often he's using you and I as instruments of that nourishment, that sanctification, that encouragement as we come together. I mean, beautiful pictures, isn't it? I just think uh, these are exceedingly meaningful metaphors of which they have no power, they have no depth if it were not for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we just close in prayer this day, um, thanking you for these two metaphors, in the midst of it, we do thank you for your um, remarkable patience and mercy uh, towards each one of us. We're thankful, Lord, that um, you are continuing your work of washing with the word, continuing your work of um, uh, cleansing and purifying and growing. Lord, I just pray earnestly as we seek you that the more we understand the way that your scripture sets forth the reality and the relationships uh, in the context of the church, um, God, that you would move us as your people uh, to live in light of these things in submission to Christ, to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.